You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm first and foremost an actor, and it's who I am fundamentally. And I'm good at the producing, and I love the producing. It's given me a whole nother creative arm, and it's very empowering. And I recommend it to anyone, the actor, who feels disempowered, as we often do. Hello, and welcome to Women's History Month here on Why I'll Never Make It. All this month, I'll be featuring conversations with female creatives about their setbacks and successes, the ups and downs that they've faced here in the entertainment industry. The four women I'll be featuring this month on the podcast come from all different arenas within entertainment. Actor, director, producer, writer, composer, lyricist, dancer, and even TV co-host. Also, in honor of Women's History Month, I'll be doing a feature on theater pioneers and icons at the end of each episode. This week is Broadway producer Cheryl Crawford, so stick around at the end of the episode to learn more about her. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. On today's episode, my guest is Abigail Rose Solomon an actor and producer who founded the Tony-nominated Rosalind Productions. Last year, I interviewed Caitlin Kinnanen of The Prom on Broadway, and through that episode, I found out about Abigail and reached out to her about coming on the podcast. The mission of her production company is to entertain, empower, and enlighten. And they do that by exploring stories in which the female characters are as vital, complex, and influential as the male characters. Rosalind Productions was founded in 2005 and has produced both in Los Angeles as well as New York, on and off Broadway. As an actor and producer, Abigail has worked with some amazing artists both in New York and Los Angeles. And so our conversation today focuses on those two cities, the lessons that she's learned in both markets. I think as actors, it's so important that we understand the vital role that producers play in our industry. She and I talk about how sometimes producers get a bad name amongst us actors, and she opens up about her own audition process, and more specifically, how she joined the production team of The Prom on Broadway. But we start off today by talking about the differences between New York and Los Angeles when it comes to acting and producing. 
Well, I grew up in New York City. And I, so what brought you Manhattan. then to L.A. and then back? I mean, I went to L.A. after I went to the NYU graduate acting program. And my cousin was writing on the practice. He's a screenwriter, film director and everything. And he was writing on the practice. And I thought, oh, I'll go out, <laughs> you know, to visit him. And I almost, he brought me in and I almost booked a role on it. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I had done Law and Order and Sex in the City here. And I thought, let me go check it out LA. It's sort of on my bucket. You talk about bucket lists. What, what, what's on my bucket list? I'll always want to sort of check it out. And, and so I went out as an actor there to do film television, ended up, you know, I was there on really bi-coastal for eight years and started producing theater there. Yeah. They have a really cool theater scene where actors produce their own stuff. Actors used to produce, and now it's sort of, it became directors, or artistic directors, and directors produce. But out there, I think there are more theater companies than actually any city in the country, because there's there are 100,000 actors out there, and yeah. a lot of them want to do stuff. And it's not just people, there's a perception, want to showcase. It's, it's people who are passionate and want to get stuff up and be a part of community. Community is really important to build in L.A., and um, I loved it. It was very cool. Also, here's the thing. There weren't equity rules out there the way there are here because theater is the business in New York. Right. So there are a lot of restrictions on how long and how much you can that make it harder to produce. They've now started to put more of that into L.A. And I thought, I don't know if I could uh, you know, afford to do a, a show out there now because you have to. I mean, I'm an actor, too. I am a member of Actors Equity. But now you have to pay your actors more, I think. Over the last like five years, they've definitely tried to, I guess, make the rules more uniform, whether you're yeah. New York or L.A., yeah. and they're just different markets. And so to try to put the same rules on both can be a little onerous. Yeah, I mean, it, it just allowed me as just an actor who wanted to put up a show to, um, you know, you can run it for as long as you want. I think you can charge as much for tickets as you want, and you could, I mean, this was back, you know, 2000. Five to 2010 or 11, I was doing these shows there. You know, you pay a stipend to your actors just to be nice. And and uh, so you could really put some cool stuff up. And, I, and that's what I... And I, I don't know if I would have become a producer if I was in New York, if I hmm. stayed just in New York. I think I would have kept pursuing my acting. And I... But, but that was an amazing thing. There is something about California, too. It is the land of ideas. You mm -hmm. know, it is Silicon Valley because it's, I was like, it's only 50 years old. I mean, now, you know, it's not that old. So it's a lot of headspace. And I also came from New York. So when you have a lot of history with a place or there is a lot of history, sometimes you get a little overwhelmed. And there I just gave me as Virginia Woolf says, a room of my own, literally. I was living out there with a lot of time on my hands in between auditioning and doing mm -hmm. acting work and no family there. And, and sort of it gave me time to develop this thing that became I became passionate about, too. And during that time in L.A., how different was it as far as trying to be an actor and going to auditions and making it there as opposed to New York? Um, I mean, I think I gave up something. I was pretty new out of grad school and out of NYU, you get these leagues and I had a great agent and I was going out for a lot, um, especially theater. And I happened to book two 
TV shows and I was doing really well. And I think honestly, you know, I see the trajectory of some of my um, NYU classmates. And I think if I had stayed here and continued on that path, I would have been on Broadway as an actor and, and uh, maybe done a lot more here. Um, but I made a choice to go to LA. I, I didn't have an agent there because at the time I think maybe, I don't know if this is true, but maybe agencies are better at being a little more by close. Well, now you can just put yourself on tape, right? But right. at the time, which wasn't so long ago, but, but it was a little separate. So I really started from scratch. And so I started submitting myself and, and just finding representation. I wrote everyone, you know, I always say, you know, my one advice to people is just, just reach out to anyone and everyone who you have a lead with. So I write letters, you know, actual handwritten Yeah. Yeah. who went to my, happened to have gone to my school in New York, lived out there. And I wrote her a letter and she said, Oh, well, don't talk to me. I don't, you know, talk to my husband, David Duchovny at the time. And so he met with me and he was recommended an acting teacher and, you know, um, I just reached out to who I could. And I, one day, one of these random, I met somebody on the porch, Martha's Vineyard once, Mark Tinker. And one day, and I wrote him a letter. Okay, so I'd met him years early. And I said, I'm in L.A. And I looked him up in the books. And and uh, I got a call from his casting director at NYPD Blue one day. And he said, would you like to play a foreman in two episodes of NYPD Blue. So, so that was the easiest. It was just an immediate offer? There, yeah. There was no audition? I believe so. I do not think I auditioned. And Those I thought, okay, that, that's yeah. why you really do have to, you know, meet everyone and put yourself out there and ask for what you want. You know, I have done that very successfully in some cases and not as successfully. Yeah. I've been too polite in a lot of cases that those are the moments I regret. Um, I was producing a play and I got a... A meeting with Lifetime, the woman who was high up at creatively at Lifetime. And um, I sort of went in thinking, oh, I'm just going to do a Q&A and she'll just get to know me. And that relationship will lead to something in the future, which sometimes it does, because with Mark Tinker, randomly it did, you know, but she showed up with her team. And I think she was really expecting uh, me to pitch her an idea. Oh, I mean, it was okay. a real opportunity. And I kind of sort of just did his Q&A. And I, and I was actually, I think I was in the middle of producing this play I had written. That's how I started producing. It was a play that I did at NYU. And when I was out there, I thought, oh, I'll do it in LA too. It was crazy. I was producing for the first time. I was acting in it. <laughs> so uh, I'm not a playwright. I know how hard it is to write a play. But that was how I launched my producing career. And I should have said, come to my play. I ha Or pitched it as a t TV idea. You know, right. like, why didn't I take advantage of that moment and and I let it pass and and it passed and it was to never be again but that you know things like moments like that I regret but but other ones I've good, been good at seizing the moments and sometimes I've come across too strong and sometimes it's just right and you know it's it's I guess the word might be elegant I try to be elegant in how I handle things and sometimes I'm not and sometimes I'm too too well you know but uh in New York I mean it is a small it's very relationship based and I mean the relationship was good talk about producing in New York goes way back yeah and you know the theater world is very tight um in la 
everyone's sort of there to pitch. In fact, what I found hard about living in LA was actually the social aspect. I kind of just also wanted to make friends and I found it hard to, uh, to just, you know, I, I'm sort of self-depreciating in a way. So if I would have a lunch with, I don't know, a fellow actor or, or somebody and sort of, you know, say what was working, what wasn't working, sort of like your podcast, you know, be honest. Right. I found that they're like, oh, she can't do anything for me. I'm out of here, you know? Right. I always got that that feeling that, like, it was hard to be just a value for your own person there. It, you know, it was on one side of that. And also, you know, so I, in the end, to me, relationships are everything. And my character means a lot to me. Yeah, that's what I've tried to do is I try to just have a good connection, good relationship, whether it's a director I'm working with or fellow castmates, and kind of let the work speak for itself. But But at the same time, I think there is that next step of using that to network, using that as a stepping stone to kind of push yourself and, and make yourself known out there. And did you find yourself uh, going back and forth between those two and, and suddenly becoming good at both? I, I feel like it's moment to moment. I can name instances because these things are like weigh on me. They, I really think about them, you know, well, it's been years, but these moments where I thought, oh, I overstepped my bounds. Oh, I understepped my bounds. I could have gotten maybe, I mean, I was meeting with this guy who was a, a big guy at William Morris, and he was like, can I help you with anything? And I, I came to his house, and I don't know, it was through some connection or another. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 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 I'm good. He said, are you, I think he even said, are you represented? And I said, yeah, 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 I like my manager. And to this day, I'm thinking, <laughs> what was I thinking? And he was who offering. in L.A.? But, and and yeah. I think maybe they're, they're expecting that. And actually, my dad said that more recently. My dad's a businessman. But he said, you don't go into interviews and, and do Q&As. You want to say who you are mm -hmm. and then say what you want. So I've gotten much better at that. I think I'm good at that when it comes to the producing. I'm much shyer with that as an actor. I get mm. much shyer, you know, I get nervous about if I see a casting director at a party or something. I'm so much shyer about it. I don't know, maybe because it's more personal to me. You know, yeah. I am first and foremost an actor and, you know, it's who I am fundamentally. And I'm good at the producing and I love the producing. It's given me a whole nother creative and arm and it's very empowering and I recommend it to anyone <laughs> actor who feels disempowered, as we often do. And um, But it's harder for me to assert myself as an actor. As a producer, it's easy for me to go into a meeting right. and say, this is what I've done. That's how I've been invited often to these Broadway show teams where they're looking for co-producers. But I've come on saying, look, I, I did this. I was in the trenches. I did this by myself. I didn't know what a general manager was. I did literally everything from nuts to bolts. And um, theater is my passion. My goal in life is just to get theater to tip, I say, <laughs> at the tipping point. If you've right. read that, they get it, make it into the pop culture, get it to be ubiquitous that everyone goes to theater. Um, you know, Hamilton has helped a lot with that. Yeah. But it's, you know, I love theater and want people to come see theaters. Now, Abigail brings up a good point. In the golden era, the golden age of musicals, Broadway was everywhere. It was on the radio. It was in movies. The songs from Broadway filled households around the country, not just in New York. The songs of Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, the Gershwins, these were the popular tunes of the day, the 30s, the 40s, and 50s. 
But then in the 60s, rock and roll and pop music started to supplant the Broadway songs of that day. Now that's not to say that big musicals didn't come along. In the 80s, there was Phantom of the Opera. The 90s, we had Rent. And in the early 2000s, Wicked. But these one-offs were basically blips in the Broadway timeline when it came to popular musicals and songs. In fact, for decades, the highest chart debut for a cast album was Camelot in 1963. And it held that record for 50 years. Until Hamilton. Now, Hamilton changed the game when it came to Broadway being in the mainstream, the album that everyone was buying. In fact, in 2018, the cast album for Hamilton racked up its 145th week in the top 40 on the Billboard 200 chart, surpassing Adele's 21 for the longest run in the top 40 since Nielsen Music began tallying it in 1991. That's right. A Broadway cast album is the longest-running album in the top 40 of all albums out there. That is the broad appeal that a show like Hamilton created. And so Broadway and its music are staging a cultural comeback, taking over movie screens, making shows out of jukebox hits, and making a new generation think they can rap like Lin-Manuel Miranda or sing the notes of Ben Platt. But as Abigail points out, It's not just Broadway and movies that have changed. Television has gotten in on the game as well. Now they're doing musicals on, you know, Glee. Well, Ryan Murphy, who's doing that movie of the prom. Exactly. But he, you know, doing Glee and getting people excited about that. And then the shows they now do live on television. And, you know, celebrities which who do theater, I mean, they do help bring, um, you know, producers cast them often because they're talented and good, but but we need certain celebrities to to get people to come to plays, to pay for the plays and try to at least make your money back, if not a profit, which, right. is, you know, is so hard. Um, but also it does bring people who wouldn't otherwise necessarily come to the theater. And then you hope they go, wow, theater is kind of amazing. I want to go, you know. So speaking of contemporary theater, The Prom is certainly your latest project, that seems very close to your heart. Actually, all the shows I've produced are very much my soul. There have been a few, I don't don't know, every time I've tried to do something just for like the connection, it's never worked out. Hmm. So I, I feel like both acting and producing, there's always sort of like, it's not just even from my heart. It's sort of like, I get it. It works out when my soul is involved. Right. And it's not always in my control. I mean, it was in terms of the plays I was going to produce. But but the prom was something, you know, that my uh, partner, Jennifer Kranz, who's amazing. She's my creative director. She brought made a, me aware of this amazing show that was coming to Broadway. And I actually saw it on I didn't know anything about it, but I saw it on the a workshop video and it was leapt out at me the actors caitlin the whole team was so extraordinary i laughed and cried i saw this videotape and usually doesn't translate well right right if a stage show can translate onto just a a home video basically then you know there's something right with no sets or anything it wasn't even the out of town atlanta production it was a (laughs) workshop in a rehearsal room and the actors screamed out at me It, it was so brilliant and I was so moved by it and I laughed out loud consistently four times. I thought, well, this is going to be incredible on stage. So that's how 
I, I definitely chose the prom. And so how did that process work from you finding out about it, seeing this video, and what was that process of you becoming part of the producing team? I think it was pretty quick because I think it was on its way to Broadway. And so, you know, I met with Dory Banstein, the lead producer, the one who created the show, and um, told her sort of about our marketing background and producing background. And she liked the work that Rosalind Productions had done and what we stand for. Also, I had a very clear mission, which is strong female characters. The I try to stay very um, true to that. You know, the prom obviously has... Fits Several, that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, pro- ideally, are the protagonist. The prom has more than one female protagonist, so um, she just we clicked, and we I love the show, and you know, then they say what they need you to raise, what's and, and what they're going to offer you in return. That's how it works, yeah. and um, and we came on board, and it, it's been a really it was really special group. Now, when it comes to the prom, Rosalind Productions was not alone in seeing the magical and wonderful qualities of this musical. In fact, a look at the prom playbill will show 43 names and organizations above the title. 43. So what exactly do all of these people do? What is the job and function of a Broadway producer? Now, the simple answer is that a producer raises money. But there's a lot more involved in it than just that. Many years ago, someone who knows a little bit about producing Broadway musicals had his own definition of what a producer is. Here's what Oscar Hammerstein said about producing. A producer is a rare, paradoxical genius. Hard-headed, soft-hearted. Cautious, reckless. A hopeful innocent in fair weather and a stern pilot in stormy weather. A mathematician who prefers to ignore the laws of mathematics and trust intuition. An idealist, a realist, a practical dreamer, a sophisticated gambler, a stage-struck child. That's a producer. So there's certainly a lot more to producing than just holding the purse strings. But there's also more to the title than just producer. Nowadays, there's lead producer, co-producer, associate producer, executive producer, all of these designations. But what exactly do they mean? Co-producers are the people who are above the title, but the first producers listed are the lead producers, otherwise known as the general partners. And it's their show. I mean, Dory and Bill and Jack, it's their show. And... They're in charge of it, and us co-producers uh, come on board, and we help raise whatever money we've agreed to, and it's usually listed, uh, you know, in the order of sort of, of how money much raised, money of. money raised in terms of, but but everybody is above to t- the title, and then there's different levels of involvement, and and the prom team was very open to us being very involved, so we. Um, you know, would give our story ideas as it was developing. And it was in previews to Dory, which, and, and Bill and Jack, who would relay it to the creative team as they saw fit. Right, right. You know what I mean? It's, and, it's kind of one of those things, if they agreed with it, then they would pass it right. on. Right. And also, yeah. I remember Bill saying in, in a meeting, he said, we are hearing certain things from a lot of people. So they're hearing, they're listening to, there were a bunch of co-producers and probably right. other people sort of, 
pitching in ideas. And if there's and, one theme that, that they're all yeah, talking about, yeah, then if it's a lot probably... of people are saying something isn't working, or then and then it goes in previews, and but there is a hierarchy to the way things are handled. I mean, even as a a lead, so I was a lead producer on the shows that I personally produced. I did right. four in L.A. and I did three in New York. As a producer, you have to be a good creative producer. Is someone who watches and sort of sees, and then you you tell the director. You know, you would never go. I mean, some producers may, but at, at, at me as a producer, I would talk to the director, and I would never, as a producer, go to an actor right. and say something. <laughs> That's the director's job, and there, there's that that I've learned sort of the etiquette and the hierarchy and how things are handled because. Artists are, you know, you have to treat them with care. <laughs> as we both know. know. Process, as <laughs> right. we know, right? Yeah. And uh, even a good comment can sort of, you know, don't read reviews while you're performing. Because right, right. even a good you. comment yeah. can kind of throw you. And you're like, oh, someone thought that was funny. So I'm going to push for the laugh now. And it's just better. So so there's a certain way things begin. But the problem was just, it was a really... Caitlin was talking about on your podcast about how special, for example, the stage management team. How, mm-hmm. And and just there was this, it was the kindest group of people. It was the most inclusive. It was yeah. a show about inclusivity. But actually, even sort of the parties and gatherings, sometimes you feel like, oh, the actors are over there. But this was the most open, sort of inclusive, uh, warm group of actors. It really seemed and, like a family. And the producers were a yeah. very kind group and everybody, oh my God, we were so invested in that show. I've never been sadder about a show closing. I, I right. told, was, I, was, was that, that sudden? How, how did that closing notice come about? Was it a surprise? Um, well, I mean, you, you look at the box office and you see how it's doing over a certain amount of time and we had a lot of amazing things happening i mean it was a very successful show in so many ways it's just at a certain point financially you you have to make a judgment call Mm -hmm. but but the amount of accolades we got the Tony nominations, we run won the Drama Desk Award. <laughs> We're having a movie with Meryl Streep, you know, and Nicole Kidman in it that's coming out. We're going to be doing a national tour, so the movie will come out ahead of that and, and hopefully make people more aware of uh, an interest in coming to see the tour. But, yeah, there was a heartbreak because that cast mm-hmm. cannot be replicated. I've never seen performances like that. And just the energy every night. I mean, it was a show. It was it was very tricky marketing wise. It was a show that was very, very hard to let people know what it was really about and to get people to come. But I, I, I don't know one person who didn't when they finally did come. People would leave out nightly and say that was the, one of the best shows I've ever seen. And just the energy was always kinetic. It was like a rock concert sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, because whenever I saw it, I actually saw it uh, in December during its run. And the audience was ecstatic almost ever. Every number, there was huge applause and there was so much energy on stage. And even in the softer moments, it was delicately done, but also with passion, as energetic as the big numbers were. So it was a good balance, I think, of both. Yes. Yeah. 
I was very proud of that show and, and loved it. And it, it has a whole life ahead of it. So. Yeah. One of the, uh, I guess, controversies is that the, the diehard theater fans of the prom, the Broadway production were kind of miffed that that cast, as you said, was an amazing cast, didn't get to do or be a part of the movie. What is your reaction to the different castings of uh, the Broadway show versus the movie? I mean, this is a question really to ask Dory, but Dory, Bill, and Jack were so gracious about not talking about it much uh, while the show was running because it's heartbreaking. I mean, they, Beth and Chris and Brooks and Angie, th- those roles were written for them. Mm-hmm. They helped create them. There's some facts, I think, even about their lives in the show. Um, but a movie has to sell, and a movie needs stars. Like a play these days on Broadway needs right. big stars. Yeah. Now to get Meryl Streep to do it. Are you going to say amazing. no to Meryl? <laughs> right? That How can she you say loved, no? <laughs> that she loved it. Yeah. That's amazing. And that she wanted to do it. But, you know, I mean, I think that's the economics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great for the prom in that the prom shows how hard it is to sell a show on Broadway that's not a brand. How hard it is to get people to come to theater. Right. Which is something I wanted, was saying I want to try to overcome. So it didn't have a brand. People didn't know what the prom was. You know, nowadays people have the brand is, oh, I know that movie star. Oh, I know that play. It's right. a well-known out of To Kill a Mockingbird. I know that book, To Kill a Mockingbird. I know mm-hmm. Tootsie, you know. So those are all um, help get the, the shows may be absolutely fantastic but they right. help get butts in seats right just right. initially yeah and um it, that it's hard it's hard so the prom movie will hopefully help people will say oh you know i i heard of that movie i heard Meryl streep was in i heard nicole kim or i saw that movie so hopefully that will bring the national tour audiences in more because they'll have an idea of what it is right but, uh, but yes, star casting is kind of the, the name of the game now. And people like myself who aren't stars, we, we kind of like, well, I could do that. But we get that there needs to be a name sometimes attached to it. And yeah, as our a bit, it means the nature of our right. Place. And as a producer and an actor, do you ever have a, like a tug of war with yourself as far as you want to give actors a chance, but you also know that you need a name? Is it- Yeah, I mean, if I think about if doing plays, I mean, I haven't. Yet my one of my goals is to lead produce on Broadway and Jennifer, my partner and I are starting to develop our own ideas and it is hard. I mean, you'd think on Broadway, a musical, which we're developing, um, you could have really, I mean, we did in the prom had Tony award winning, really, really well-known Broadway stars. Right. Um, but it's a combination. It's still, to the, the big ubiquitous general public. Right, right. Um, the family coming from Ohio is not going to know who Beth right. Level is. Exactly. And they is. should. They should know. <laughs> and if they saw the show, Maybe now they, they know. would now, but, <laughs> but they're not necessarily going to say, oh, I'm going to go to that. They might say, I'll go to Phantom or Lion King or something that they've heard because it's a huge investment. I mean, it's time and it's, it's a lot of money. So I get that. But, um, so, but when I do think about plays, definitely. And on Broadway, it seems like you need, I mean, you need major stars on Broadway. It's not to be, there are a lot of, they're famous, there are a lot of famous people, but sometimes 
you kind of need a Daniel Craig level to guarantee you're going to make yeah. your money back or yeah. profit. Because I saw a show that was like that, a play called The River, a very, a very subtle show, but it would start Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. And, right. so, and so he's going to put butts in the seats. And I wonder if sometimes do, do producers want just butts in the seats and so they think about getting a star? Or does a star ever mean that a show is, it's not that great, but if we get a star, then people will come and see it. Because I've seen shows that I think needed a star or it wouldn't have survived. They're, they're, well, Heidi Schreck didn't though. I mean, she's amazing. You know, she had this incredible play. So there you go. Like there's an example of something that just the, the product. And I made a huge mistake by not being a co-producer. I admit I've told them they, I was offered that show and I was, I was afraid that it wouldn't make its money back because it was a show I loved and thought was incredible. But, but I was worried about that very thing and my bad because you know what? I think it even may have made a profit and it's going to be done regionally around the country and and it got nominated for two Tonys and it was nominated for a Pulitzer. Yeah, it was finalist for the Pulitzer. So so that was an example of just a fantastic, you know, so if it's that good, maybe it can, you know, maybe there is hope that artistry wins. And, you know, I was so happy the year that Fun Home won. I thought, yay, art won. I can't even remember what it ran against, which I'm sure was very good. But, But I just thought, you know, those moments where you think art won. And I'm an artist first and foremost. I mean, yeah. but I'll tell you what, nobody goes, nobody goes into theater for the money. Mm-hmm. People go into film because they think they're money or become film actors because maybe they want money. They imagine they're going to get money. Yeah. Nobody wants a theater and, actor and yeah. for the money and nobody yeah. become, and no theater is just something that people kind of are born with loving. I think right. sometimes people come to it a little later in life. Um, but commercial producers all the time, I find, are just doing shows they love and they feel like need to be seen. And sometimes they go in almost knowing that it's not gonna, that it might lose money or whatever, but they just are, are passionate about what's being said. And that's something that I've always wondered about because 80% of shows don't show a profit. You know, so the odds are stacked against you for a show to really be a big hit and to start to make money. So I've always wondered, well, then how do producers sustain that? <laughs> how does the producer stay in business? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they try to keep it open until certain things like award season. That's why it happens a lot. Okay, we didn't want awards, so we're not going to keep going because we didn't get that uptick. Or they just sort of keep open as long as they sort of think or get through a certain season. Um, if you're talking on a personal level, yeah. you know, how producers stay, they, they, you know, <laughs> um, I have found through my entire career, starting with my very first, um, equity job when mm-hmm. I was young at Berkeley Repertory Theater and my scene partner was this wonderful man and he had a family and he had, you know, he was a working actor in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and he um, was making it work. And when he didn't have jobs, he he was sometimes doing four jobs at the same time. Mm. And I thought, you know, people who are dedicated to the theater or people who are dedicated to being actors or whatever artists they are, they figure it out. 
Yeah. Do you know whether some come from money, some don't, um, some find a way to make it, some don't, but they will figure it out because they're passionate about what they do. And, and that's why I, I love the group of, of New York producers and commercial producers and, and, and artistic directors. And it's just a group of people who just loves theater yeah. And has something to say, whatever it is they want to say, and try to say it in the best way possible. We had talked about, we're both members of Actors' Equity, and I've served on several committees. And from time to time, the producers will get a bad name, you know, because it's kind of like equity on one side with the actors and the producers are on the other. Actors want more money, producers want to spend less money, you know, so it, it can be this contentious battle. And sometimes some of my actor friends will put the producers as the bad guy. And for me, I'm like... I want producers to make as much money as they can because the more money they have, the more likely a show will continue and the more likely more shows will be produced. So for me, I see it as we we need to support them as much as they need to foster us. Sort of recently, I'm not going to say what show or whatever, somebody was doing a show and uh, a fellow artist friend of mine was complaining about how much uh, the producer decided to sell tickets for and I said, you know, this was someone from the nonprofit world commenting on a commercial hmm. producers. Uh, and I said, are you kidding me? I, do you know she's trying to keep this show alive? She can't. This is how she's attempting to pay the bills. She's probably losing a ton of money just knowing that her in general. I don't I didn't know anything about the specifics. But I, yeah. I but I sort of thought, how can you be criticizing her for just trying to keep the show alive? It allows actors mm -hmm. to work and allows the design managers and everybody to do their job. I mean, a producer is, it is a hard job. And, um, what would you say is the toughest show that you've had to work on? Well, I, I have to say my very first one, um, that I produced. <laughs> because where you I was didn't acting, know what you were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And you know what? I learned by failing. I learned by screwing up. I, I didn't know what questions to ask. So I didn't know I need insurance at the theater. I didn't know this or that. And so I would just, everything would go wrong. But I was like, my ship will not sink. Right. You know, I mean, being a producer is really like being a parent. You have children and you need your children to survive and thrive and you need to pay and set out a creative space and allow the art to happen. But you also have to get people in to see it because that's part of the the success of it you're not going to play to a completely empty house right. and so there at least to need to be more more people in the audience than there are on stage hopefully and um you know you just i was like this ship is not going to sink and 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 it didn't in fact we extended it another there but crazy things went on because i had no idea what i was doing but then the next time you know i had a mission i said i i got a baseball cap and a website and a logo and now i'm a producer and i have <laughs> ideas of what else you all you need as a producer really is an idea hmm. so producers have ideas or ideas are brought to them um jack Vertel had an idea about the prom which he brought to dory bernstein maybe it was also brought to casey nickel at the same time but producers have an idea either they have a play or they have an idea that they want to hire somebody to write or, you know, they have an actor who they want to work with or some creative who brings an idea to them. And it starts from there. It's so all-encompassing. And I'm in awe of, you know, in some ways, these long-running shows, I guess they get into a rhythm and stuff. But, but um, 
it's intense. And if you have a hit on your hands, you're in for the long haul. Yeah, yeah that, that's like the blessing and the curse because it's wonderful that it's taken off, but then it even takes up more of your time. Yeah. If it really is a juggernaut. And what I'm really amazed by, which I ask, I am not a musical theater actor, so I've decided I'm going to produce musical. I, I no longer produce shows I'm in, by the way. Uh, L.A., you know, I say there's no such thing as a vanity project and LA, everything is, but you can do whatever you want, you know. The Hollywood world, the TV film world, you can be a director, writer, producer. In New York, it feels much more like you have to separate it. But um, I can produce musicals because I don't act in musicals. I'm not a musical theater actor. Right. But what I was saying was I, I, I can't. I don't know how musical theater actors do what they do eight shows a week. <laughs> Yeah, it's and, and not only that, but we had, you know, the prom, as uh, Caitlin mentioned, events. I mean, they were so great. They all showed up to all these events we had. Yeah, they're getting up at 5 a.m. to do some morning show, and then and then they'll do an event that afternoon, and then they have a show that night. I know. It's, it's, they're it's amazing. Crazy. And yeah. then the, with the dancing and the singing, you know, it's acting is a lot of energy, you mm-hmm. know, without the dancing and the singing, just straight acting, which is what I do, but... Because in the entertainment industry, not just theater, creatives are rarely just one thing. Even Abigail, she's mentioned that she started out as an actress, but then got into writing and producing and even marketed her own shows. And in theater, there's the popular designation of being a triple threat, an actor, singer, and dancer. And in the last several years, there has been a rise in what is called the multi-hyphenate or a person that is gifted, talented, and busy doing more than just one job. It's not just a matter of having a side hustle or an extra job, a survival job. It's a matter of the artist actually having function and work in many different areas of the industry. Emma Gannon wrote the Sunday Times best-selling business book, The Multi-Hyphen Method. She herself is a multi-hyphenate a writer, broadcaster, and podcaster, and she was one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2018 in the areas of media and marketing. She wrote in the multi-hyphen method, quote, this is about choosing a lifestyle. This is about taking back some power into our own hands. She goes on to say that with a plan of attack, we can find a mishmash of different income streams and become a career chameleon. And I certainly include myself in this designation, an actor, singer, podcaster, writer, host, and hopefully one day adding director into those titles. And so how did Abigail become a multi-hyphenate? What was the journey she took in learning all of these skills? I mean, it was a journey. Um, In LA, I was doing both. And then I started to come back. But then I was doing primarily theater and it was doing like less TV and film and um, came back to New York where I'm from and started to learn, you know, I thought I don't want to come, I don't want to come back to New York and be pounding the pavement as an actor. I want to, I need a job if I'm going to re-enter New York. So I started working on shows, on Broadway shows. I was a management associate on um, Cyrano. And then I started doing these other jobs like marketing. And I, I produced, like I said, a few shows off Broadway myself. Actually, the first one happened because I was, um, I auditioned for it. It was on my bucket list. I got the role and then the producing, what, the producers sort of went their separate ways. So one of the producers, um, I joined her 
and we made a great team and the other so I ended up producing and acting in that and but otherwise outside of that um I I just have found and and I let the acting go and I started just working for nonprofits and doing marketing and all this other stuff. But I, but I, I was, I got married and my husband has been very supportive of me being an actor and sort of knows it's who I fundamentally am and started as. And he encouraged me. And so actually I sort of thought, oh, you have to do all that before you have kids. But ironically, with having a family, we've just sort of figured it out. So I've been, I've been acting more in the last, five or six or seven years than I was for a time between when I was sort of segueing back from LA to New York. Um, so I let those sort of smaller productions go. So now I'm mostly doing Broadway stuff, but, you know, auditioning, doing shows in New York regionally, you know, auditioning, doing some film and television stuff. And it's been good. And I, oddly, as I've gotten older, I'm getting more auditions. I don't know why. That's, Usually it works in good. reverse. But man, I'm like, maybe I'm growing into my type finally. Right, right, you know, right. I was you never an ingenue type, you know, too much of a producer in me to be like an ingenue type. Right, right. You, you came in with too much knowledge, too much experience to be, you know, just a... Well, a, a I don't know what it was. It was just that also that's why I started doing what I'm doing. That's my mission. It's because the roles offered to women mm. are not that, you know, they're not enough diversity in women in dramatic literature. Um, I think contemporary wise, it's starting to grow. It's starting to yeah. grow. I mean, even in the 90s, a lot, I found a lot of the great playwrights were still women, were still sort of muses. Hmm. Do you know? They, they weren't... I mean, they're great roles in Shakespeare, but they're just not that many. But my company's name is Rosalind Productions after the biggest female role in Shakespeare. And Rosalind drives the story. She is the protagonist, yeah. um, which I don't think is true in any of his other plays. Huh. And... Um, but I love Shakespeare, but they're just not as many women in Shakespeare. But but even in the more contemporary stuff, it's sort of like who who is the woman? What it, what is her role? Like what was so great about the prom is you wrote Emma and then Alyssa and Angie and Beth's character, and they're they're all different ages and they're different looks. And then the mom, you know, Courtney Collins did an incredible job with that mom yeah. that could have been sort of the demonized mom, but but her acting was extraordinary and really fleshed it out. And we fleshed it out in the in the writing as well. So that's a lot of really good different female roles in one show. I mean, that's really hard to find. Right. Absolutely. And I sometimes find just in the room, you know, it's a dy dynamic and, and directors definitely want actors they feel, I think, or more malleable, or maybe it's being a female actor. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you have to smile and you have to make sure, you know, you tread that very tricky line of... So I, I think, like, what's happened to me auditioning is I've just, I've gone through a lot of phases, but I think I'm in a good place now uh, with with just how I decide to come into a room like the choices I make that make me feel empowered because I felt like I used to go in and I'm just myself and I was like I don't think that's working fine I was like my talent will speak for itself not that I was rude or anything I mean I don't say much and nobody says anything to you that's why in a meeting or interview it's so much easier because you get to know the person stuff you go in but you just don't know what factors are happening right. so then um, I went through a phase where I was just trying to be really 
I was sort of scared by the people in the room, you know, and I was trying to be ingratiating or whatever it was. And very recently, for me, the hardest thing, I've never been a test taker. I'm very process oriented. Um, I know I'm talented. <laughs> a lot of people have told me so. And I just, I know what I'm capable of. Um, but uh, auditioning ain't my thing. Once I'm in the room and I have a part, you know, like acting comes easily to me. I mean, it's never easy, but you know what I mean? Like I don't have stage fright. I can absorb a role and get it. But but that sort of pressure to perform is excruciating. And, and that does a lot of head games for me. So I've had to do yeah. a ton of work. And I have to go through a whole process, too, when I go into audition. I get there an hour before and I have this whole ritual. And whenever, even recently, I sort of skimped on it. I'm like, I know what I'm doing. I'm fine. But I think my nerves just get the better of me. I cannot skimp on my sort of process to get me to a good headspace where I can go in and like really do my best work. Yeah. I've experienced that myself whenever I was just finished one audition and I was trying to race to this next audition to get there and I got there just in time. And so, you know, three minutes later I was in the room and then when the audition went down, I was like, what did I just do in the room? Like, I wasn't present. I think that moment that you take, that arriving early and kind of getting your mindset is so important to be in the right headspace and emotional space. There's so many actors. I, I like can't believe they're backstage, like looking at their cell phones or, or right before an audition. I'm like, wow, I, I don't know how you go out there and act doing that because uh, I sure can't. And a lot of it is just getting in touch with how I feel, which is which is you bring your best acting from that. Actually, one one of my auditions recently, I was I I found myself freaking out before it, and I was not focused. And then, thank God, I sort of realized I was like, oh, I'm channeling what. The person, what I'm supposed to be playing. See, here's the thing about auditioning. Like, if you want to go in channeling who you're playing, they're often in not a great mood. So right. I used to go and just focus on the work. But then I think people were thinking, oh, she's difficult or something. <laughs> I mean, that's what's right. so hard about being an actor. You have to go in and show them and you're, like, sweet and friendly. And then, you know, and, like, totally open for direction. And then go into your scene and then come out of it and be, you know what I mean? Like, that I found <laughs> yeah. so hard. So this yeah. time I, I was, I, I just, uh, I was like, I am not focused. I am not settled. And I thought, well, this woman is freaking out so for God's sake. And I started to think I'm going to change what I'm doing. It was a, it was a, it was a big audition. Mm -hmm. So Broadway national tour. And I was like, this is a big audition. And I got <laughs> scared. And I was like, I'm going to change what I'm doing last minute. I'm just going to, and I was like, Oh my God, I, I had enough perspective on myself at this point and enough experience where I've totally blown auditions doing that before. But I was like, don't you dare. Right. In fact, you're emotionally freaking out because that's the character. So put it into the work. And I, by God, I kept what I was doing and I took my emotional life and I put it into the work and I nailed it. I didn't get cast, of course. But he told me I nailed it in the room, so right. I'll take that. I mean, that, that's all we can take from auditions is, okay, today I did a good job. I'm happy with the work that I did. They even said, you know, you did a good job. So that, that's all we can do. <laughs> and you have to, but the hardest thing for me is if I, I get like literally humiliated with myself if I think I didn't do a good job. Or recently I did an audition and I thought he, I thought I did a really good job. And, but I was like, I got no reaction. And I went home and I said to my husband, he hated 
kidding me? So we went through this whole process of, of like why, what I did wrong and how I didn't present myself correctly and all this stuff. And I got cast. And so I was like, okay. So you just never like, know. You, you never just, know. Like you, just you never so know. can't take it personally and worry about what they think. But I, I do worry about what I think. But I've also more recently been like, just don't be so hard on yourself, Abby. You're, you're a good actor. I'm sure it was fine. Like it may have not been, you may have not felt like it was the most amazing thing ever. But then recently I did not, I was like, that was not fine. And I didn't do my prep. And, and so I was mad at myself for at least not doing Right, right. Uh, At least not doing everything I had control over. Right. It's important that that we begin to recognize the difference between that. It's like, oh, I'm having a bad day or, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. And so that's what I can improve on on the next audition rather than I'm a terrible actor. Why am I here? For actors who really beat up on themselves, maybe they're in the wrong job. I've never been. And I take direction really well, too, because it's like, oh, what can I do next time? Mm -hmm. It's always a what can I do next time? So I think actually it was good because then I had an even bigger audition kind of the next week or so after I felt like and I said okay you are going to not screw that one up you're going to prepare your butt off on this one you know preparation 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 absolutely and then relaxation as Abigail has shown us it takes passion to be in this industry no matter whether you're a producer actor director We all need that passion to make it in this business. And in this conversation with Abigail, three keys popped out to me. Planning, preparation, and a willingness to do what it takes to get the job done. Now that's something that doesn't just apply to producers, that applies to all of us in the entertainment industry. In an interview with Backstage, producer Brisa Trincherio, who is a part of Beautiful and the Pippin revival on Broadway, says that people who are aspiring to enter the Broadway space in any capacity have to have a passion for taking on the hard stuff. The other thing she says, quote, Don't wait for someone to give you permission to invite you to the Broadway table. No one is going to invite you. Just start showing up. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, in honor of Women's History Month, I'll be taking a look at a Broadway pioneer and icon in each of the four episodes this month. Much like today's guest, this week's Broadway pioneer was also an actress and a producer. Cheryl Crawford was born in Ohio in 1902, and at the age of 15, the theater bug hit her when she played Lady Macbeth in a local amateur production. After graduating from Smith College in 1925, she headed to New York, determined to make a life in theater. And a favorite line from the play Shakuntala became her life motto. There are doors to the inevitable everywhere. When she first arrived to New York, she worked at the Theater Guild as an actress, a secretary, a stage manager, and eventually a casting director. At the Theater Guild, she met Harold Clerman, an actor and a play reader. And in 1931, the two of them left the Theater Guild and joined with Lee Strasberg and founded the Group Theater. This was an ensemble theater company dedicated to Stanislavski's acting method and became a significant force in American theater. They produced works of such writers as Clifford Odets, Sidney Kingsley, and Irwin Shaw. They worked with actors and directors that included Stella and Luther Adler, Elia Kazan, and Samford Meisner. 
Cheryl Crawford acted as co-producer and co-director on many of the group theater productions, including Awake and Sing, Waiting for Lefty, and Men in White, which won a Pulitzer Prize. In 1937, Miss Crawford left the group theater with dreams of becoming an independent producer, which at that time was a very unusual occupation for a woman. She continued working with director Lee Strasberg and also became a producer for the Maplewood Theater in New Jersey, one of the largest stock companies in the country at the time. But it was her revival of Porgy and Bess in 1942 that solidified her as a major Broadway producer. The original production, which was presented by the Theater Guild, only lasted 124 performances. However, Miss Crawford's production ran for 285 performances. It toured the country and then returned back to New York. After the success of Porky and Bess, she went on to co-found the American Repertory Theater. Now, even though that company only lasted three years, they produced eight shows that went to Broadway. But after the American Repertory Theater closed, it was her next effort that remains her longest-lasting contribution to theater. She joined with Elia Kazan and Robert Lewis to form the Actors Studio. And the three of them were later joined by Mr. Lee Strasberg. Cheryl Crawford served as the executive producer for many of the Actors Studio productions. Now, throughout her Broadway career, she mostly worked with plays. In fact, she did four by Tennessee Williams, including The Rose Tattoo and Sweet Bird of Youth. But in 1947, she worked on a little musical called Brigadoon. And of that production, she says, Looking back, the best time I ever had as a producer was on the morning after Brigadoon opened. It was the only time in my life I ever had a show that all the critics loved. Because you see, with all of her successes, she also made some notable errors. She both hired and fired Betty Davis and Katharine Hepburn. And among the plays she could have produced but chose not to were Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Death of a Salesman, West Side Story, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. When Elia Kazan brought Death of a Salesman to her, she said, Who wants to see a play about an unhappy traveling salesman? Too depressing. One thing you can certainly say about her is she's blunt and she's honest and says exactly what she thinks. And it is that attitude that carried her throughout her career. Cheryl Crawford, actress, director, producer, Broadway pioneer. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. If there's someone you know who would enjoy and benefit from this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you would share it with them. And in the next episode, Final Five is back. I'll be asking Abigail all about bucket lists, mentors, and the best advice she's ever received. Also, Women's History Month continues here on the podcast with Georgia Stitt, composer, lyricist, and her organization, Maestra. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. Stay tuned for all of that and more next time on Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.